Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art in South River, Ontario. Currently on exhibit at the new NASA North Media Arts Centre in South River is David Rokeby's Very Nervous System. This is an interactive work from 1992 that's uh, enjoyed a long history of exhibition around the world and even up to, of course, the current day. I had the opportunity to discuss with David while the uh, installation was running in the background to, to discuss the longevity of the work and the ideas and the thinking behind it. Uh, one thing that struck me was that um, this piece began many years ago in, in the world of media arts. Something made in 1992 is, is almost ancient uh, uh, since there's such a push to have everything now, now, now. Um, but you've kind of dedicated yourself to keeping the artwork uh, going um, and update it to new technology and things like that. And so I was interested to know how, um, what, what motivated you to, uh, to keep a very nervous system uh, going. I guess the best way to answer that is to say, uh, I think I realized in 2012 when the Kinect first came out, the Microsoft Xbox Kinect depth sensor, um, that I had always believed that the technology I was using was so so limited that someone was going to come out with something that was going to blow it out of the water um, any day now. And looking back at that point, uh, back to 1982 in the first days of what became very nervous system, that was a long stretch of time for people to come up with something that worked uh, that made my work irrelevant, shall we say. And um, I kept having these experiences. I mean, that was a particularly poignant one when I went, oh my God, like it's taken them that long to come up with a, with a sensor that might just mean that the things move forward again from, from uh, where I got things to in 1991 when I kind of wrapped this project up. Um, I always loved the piece and I always wanted it to be alive and I kept being invited to show it and people kept being surprised by it even though it had been out in the wild for a very long time and so I guess I got something right and so on one hand it was just that on the other hand it was that I've long ago realized that no technology makes your art great there's no magic technology that just suddenly makes the work a magnificent work of art. So conversely, there's no lack of technology that necessarily makes a work garbage. Mm -hmm. So if a work is approached with whatever technology is available from the right perspective, with the right attitude, and with an understanding of the limitations that are inherent in it, then it can be, can be an enduring piece, even if things come along later that make it, in raw technology terms, seem pretty... Uh, Simplest. So what was the technology used in this piece? Uh, there's a long answer and a short answer. <laughs> well, I'll start with the short answer. So the short answer is um, that it started with an Apple II computer in 1981 and a, um, a, a card to digitize this rudimentary video that I uh, was, was generating 
that fit into the Apple II, um, what were called Mountain Hardware Digital Synthesizer boards. There were two boards that fit into the Apple II that would allow you to make music. And these crazy hand-built video cameras that were super low resolution, eight pixels by eight pixels, so 64 pixels per camera, three cameras. Uh, made out of light-dependent resistors, so these little cadmium sulfide cells, about half an inch across each, and a Fresnel lens that would cast the image back onto them. And uh, so I think the key thing was, um, and maybe with the secret to why it worked, was that I understood that my Apple II was not going to be able to process much. So I, I, I realized that it was really important that things operate in real time that there be, I'd be able to respond 30 times a second. It seemed to be a, a really a, a, a natural limit point for, for, for images, certainly. I mean, that's the rate that video cameras capture images or traditionally have captured images at. And to get to 30 frames a second, I knew I couldn't really deal with many pixels. And so I focused on these 8x8 cameras. I made sure that each sensor was very sensitive to changes in light levels. So even though it wasn't seeing very richly textured images, it was very responsive to slight changes in light, which would be affected by the movement of a hand or something. And so everything about the system was designed around what the system was capable of doing. And then I worked with that into something that was a satisfying experience. Um, I mean, it went through lots of phases of being a not very satisfying experience, but I managed to edge it towards a place where it was a satisfying experience. And uh, it, there's nothing that the 1985 version, shall we say, of Very Nervous System was capable of. I should put it the other way. There's, there's very little that the, that the 1991 and later versions of Very Nervous System were capable of that the 1985 one wasn't essentially capable of. Yeah, it was sensitive to smaller movements. The sound quality got you know, objectively better. Um, Is that I mean because of changes in hardware? Yeah, sixteen bit sound instead of twelve bit logarithmically compressed whatever you know whatever we were doing back then. Was, um, so there were objective improvements, but in terms of the experience and what was important to me about the experience, it didn't change that much. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So then, when you um, came across the Kinect um, around that time, isn't that when you made the, the newer version of this piece? Well, no, I made the newer version in 2003. Oh, okay. And the Kinect uh, came out in 2011, 12, somewhere in there. Um, no, when I, when I was invited in 2003 to revisit Very Nervous System after really not touching it for a long time, uh, my first response was a sort of... Uh, feeling of nausea because I had spent 10 years in that world and I couldn't imagine going back. So in 2003, when I was invited to revisit Very Nervous System, I decided I had to revisit it. and I had to go back to the roots and take a different path for it to be something I could tolerate doing. So I went back to the earliest, some of the earliest inspiration, motivations for doing Very Nervous System and took a different one of those paths not taken. Mm -hmm. The many decisions you make when you're working on something for 10 years, there are all sorts of paths that you don't take and then you yeah. wonder, gee, you wonder what would have happened. So I went back to one of those. Those so different sections within the piece are kind of have different types of interaction. So were they, in a sense, different 
paths or different doors uh, that were kind of represent different periods of uh, sort of creation or in sort the of. Um, so the traditional version of Vandiver system, as it was ex- uh, exhibited around the world uh, in the '90s and, t- and 2000s, generally had four or five different sound worlds, musical worlds, um, and it would step through them. If someone stepped out of the space, it would move to the next one. And each one is a different instrument. And just as you cannot approach a piano the same way you approach a guitar, um, it requires a shift in the way you move your body, the way you think about the space, etc. And that was really interesting to me um, because I realized early on with very nervous system, I was not only creating a piece, but I was creating a medium. And then that medium was a medium I created pieces within. Mm-hmm. So it was like a meta, meta work that I would then create works within. And so now it was the very nervous system software or uh, programming environment, or if yeah. you call it that, um, was that the medium? Well, the whole system, the, 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 on, um, the fact that there were cameras looking into space, mm-hmm. they were analyzing movement, triggering, modulating sounds that would be played out into the space in real time, which would uh, stimulate new movement. That, that's the system. I mean, the fact that there's a, a computer language in the middle there and a bunch of technology, that's not so relevant. The system is this feedback loop of... So another artist could use those tools and the software you made and with different sounds and create. And I mean, how much of a different work could they create, I guess? One of my favorite experiences... Uh, was going to the National Gallery and seeing a work someone had created with very nervous system, and I had no idea how they were using it because I, it did it did not have bear any relationship to anything I'd ever done with very nervous system, and that to me was very exciting. Mm-hmm. There was a, a a point at which uh, there was a paragraph I would put into every Arts Council grant I wrote trying to get money for to continue the work in very nervous system, which had to do with sharing this technology with the artistic community. And you know, that, was, that sounded like the right thing. It sounded like a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and you never know when you write those the first time whether it will actually become a reality. But uh, I did invest a lot of time in building these tools that were very flexible. And I realized at a certain point, there was no way I could plumb all the depths and follow all the paths. So I did find ways to, 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 uh, to generate a community of people using it. And that was so exciting because it was like, uh, again, to another level of interactivity. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, there is the interactivity that happens in the installation, but there are all these other levels as far as I'm concerned. And one of them is this very profound interactive act of creating a rich, complex, and idiosyncratic tool and handing it to someone else to do something with. Mm-hmm. So by creating the system, I've created an interactive artwork in itself. And then someone else creates a work in that. And in, a, in a parallel way to the way that when someone walks into a very nervous system, they collaborate with me on an immediate artwork in that space. So I always felt like I was handing people sort of stacks of dynamite. You know, like that, the bundles of unlimited potential, and 
there was a thrill with the notion that I did not know and had no control over what they were going to do with it. I, I mirrored, I related that to the experience of your child going out into the world long before I had a child. It was thought of it as a child that went out into the world and had its own independent life without me and uh, would sometimes do things that disappointed me and sometimes did things that confounded me and sometimes did things that made me very proud. But there was something about it being out there exploring its, the other dimensions that I would not be interested in or not have the time to follow or not be imaginative enough to, 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 to think of. That uh, was a really uh, fun part, so that was really important. How, how important in the definition of a medium is it the result being sound in this case rather than if it generated uh, visual data or something like that, or a, projection, a visual projection of some kind or changing the lights of the space or some other yeah. outcome. Very important. The first versions had some visual component to them. But that eventually, that quickly fell to the wayside because just as we know in if we've done a good sound art course or sound walks, closing your eyes makes a huge difference. You don't hear as well when you're looking at something as when you're not looking at anything. And uh, secondarily, there were pieces that were coming out around the same time, some even in Toronto, um, the very vivid Mandela system, for example, which allowed you to play instruments, but you'd see your silhouette on the screen and you'd see your silhouette touching the icons of the instruments to, to play with. And that, that was an amazing piece of technology they put together. wasn't interesting to me at all because I did not want to be inhabiting this shadow on the screen. I wanted to be in my piece, in my body. The, the, the action has to happen on the surface of the body, in the muscles and on the, sur on the skin surface for a very nervous system, to be very nervous system. And as soon as you have an image to look at, you leave your body and invest yourself in that image, and it's a completely different experience. Not wrong experience, but it's not the very nervous system experience, which is one of, you know, when I started to work on it, part of what I, well, the question I was asking was, is there a way I can make a computer remind me that I have a body, instead of making me wish I didn't have a body? You know, sitting at a computer on a, in a bad chair, forgetting, trying to forget you have a body, trying to program. You know, that, that was the main <laughs> relationship to computers that we had for programming them in the early 80s. So I wanted to turn that upside down. And so the intensity of your experience of your own body, truly your body, not a shadow or a reflection of it, but truly your own body, is fundamental to it. With the sound coming out as opposed to a visual response, then uh, how does that connect to the body more? Um, right. Like in the sense that you can play the violin with your eyes closed. Is it so like that? Is it that tactility? Is it enhances the tactility, that the relationship of sound and touch? Well, your eyes are two points on your body. And the lenses in your eyes focus the light coming into those two very local things in your body, focuses then down onto the back of your retina, and then goes through a bunch of uh, optic, the optic nerve back into your brain and is processed in a very particular way, which is incredibly marvelous, magnificent, and gobsmackingly wonderful. But it is quite analytical on a certain level. And it does, it is about things at a distance from you. You can't, you know, except for when you close your eyes and you see this, the, the strange... Uh, 
patterns of blood and things like that. Other than that, you don't, you're always looking at things at a distance from you. Even if you're looking at your hand, your hand is, is different, it's different than the experience of your hand through your proprioceptive system, through your body. Um, but hearing is different because, because, especially if you include low frequencies, your whole body is a receptor on one hand. It's, uh, it's tactile, it's diffuse, and even though, and I've done a lot of research into the differences and similarities between visual perception and acoustic perception, even though there are higher level ways in which it's similar, you can have the same sort of, you can have sonic illusions that map almost exactly to optical illusions in terms of how they work. But on a certain level, um, sound is a little closer to the reptilian brain than the, than the, the frontal lobes, shall we say. Um, it's not limited to that. I mean, you can go, you can be as cerebral about sound as you want to be. But on a certain level, I found that it, that I could, that I wasn't anywhere else when I was listening to sound except in my body. It was talking to my whole body. And it was also, it was also able to duck in under the limits of consciousness, right? That it, that I could find myself responding to sounds before I was aware of what I was responding to. That's, Theoretically possible visually as well, but it's much harder to get there visually. Um, the other, the other factor that was a pragmatic one was in the early '80s. You could do so much more with real-time sound than you could with real-time images. I mean, it wasn't an option. Well, because you could just talk to a module that produced the sound. Yes, there were lots of things. There were, you know, the first versions of what became very nervous system involved plugging, uh, a voltage generating things were reading light cells, playing them directly into the patch bay of an MS, Korg MS-20 analog synthesizer. So I could just send a voltage that was fluctuating because of light and have that control the parameters of sound. And I could do that in real time with no, with less delay than we have in the best systems now, basically. <laughs> There's no delay. Uh, get immediate real-time substantive, substantive feedback in the, in the early 80s. So that was that was great. And also, in comparison to the early experiments with virtual reality, attempts at immersion, sound just is immersive, right? It's effortless immersion. You get the immersion part free. And that's also powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now later on, um, when you uh, focused on other projects besides the uh, very nervous system, uh, or uh, uh, you started to do works that were either visual uh, centered or text works and things like that so so uh, what how, how was how were those works informed by your experience with with very nervous system and and your and this kind of um, uh, immediacy that sound had my flippant joke is that I got out of sound art because it was getting to be too hip yeah. was, uh, starting to become popular and known so I had to you know, that's not really uh, the funny thing about about um, very nervous system is that it is very optical in that it it sees you don't see but it sees and it's all about its seeing and a lot of the process of developing was trying to understand how we see or how a system could see and what what we do with that and and so my movement into visual work came from that exploration of vision. And so almost all my works in some way are inquiries into, um, into, the, into visual perception on some level. And the way that couples sometimes with surveillance or many other things, time, but 
but starts with an inquiry into perception. And it's an inquiry that seemed at the time very out of favor in the visual art world, but it was something that was very connected to the, the attitude I ran into in my uh, experiments and experiences in, in the sound art world. Um, in fact, this came, this came, became very clear to me when I was doing one of my first visual interactive pieces. And I noticed that everyone with nice glasses and interesting shoes would look into this space, see nothing to engage them, and they would leave instantly. The people I thought should be into it or the people who just like, nothing here. Um, yet three old kids were totally there. And uh, I was going, so what's going on here? And I realized that I had adopted the uh, sort of world of aesthetics from sound art and moved it into the visual realm. In the visual realm, uh, and this comes and goes, but in the visual realm, certainly at the time in the early 90s when this was when I was going through this, um, it was all about reading the image. You know, reading, you would read the installation, you were decoding it, you know, and, and my works are not designed to be decoded, or very few of them are. I mean, there's some of that here and there, but they're experiences, and you don't know what that experience is going to be when you walk in, so you can't just say this is not this is or this is not for me without having the experience and that was very much related to my experience in sound art where the first thing was you know open your ears start by opening your ears listen as well as you can and and with as with as little judgment as possible you know starting with with John Cage and Armory Schaefer and all these all these people talking about sound in that way so i was approaching images that way and if people trying to read the work symbolically would be frustrated. On the other hand, I think that if people did engage with the work, they would, they would find the same sort of transit from experience into lots of rich philosophical, political, sociological territory, psychological territory. But you enter through this door. You have to go through the door of experience. And then the rest is there. So... I still think that sound is the more beautiful medium. Beautiful, I mean that in a non sort of, I just, the more, I love sound as a medium. Mm -hmm. And I have been doing more of it recently again. But uh, I, in fact, went to the other extreme and I started to, I promised myself, I was, I was in 2001, I think I was doing a show in Vancouver. And uh, there was a symposium around the show. and. Somebody got up and was all excited. Omni-media, omni-sensual, this is fantastic, exciting, woo-woo. And I went, wow, do I believe that? And I realized, no. I said, And I said, sometimes the artist's prerogative is to include all the senses. And it's fabulous that we have the tools to allow us to do that. Sometimes the artist's prerogative is to exclude all but one sense. And that is just as much a part of and our right as an artist and our responsibility sometimes to, to, is to do that. That's why closing your eyes is such an important thing, right? It's not the same to have your eyes open. And so all media, all the time, multi-whatever, is not, is not this utopian dream for me. It is just one option. I'm glad it's there. The same way, interactivity is, I'm glad it's there as an option, but I do lots of non-interactive pieces. Because you, you've been able to make... Uh, with, with even with similar working methods, you've been able to work in different 
sensory uh, modalities, if, if it were, within the media arts. Or, but uh, is it really uh, critical, do you think, that, that uh, the future media artists are versed in, in visual and musical and other, uh, you know, other, uh, and also just in an understanding of the senses and how they, they, they work differently? You know, that they're not trained in only one area, uh, and, but really equally trained in all of them, so they kind of can yeah, I choose what they want. I don't know. I mean, that's my, that's my tendency. That's my preference. Um, I think it's like knowing several languages. Uh, it's powerful to understand uh, the very different ways our sense of the world is constructed through our different senses. Uh, I can't help but be a bit of a phenomenologist in that sense. I'm, I'm, I, a lot of how I relate to the world, uh, I understand by looking at how the, as raw as I can imagine it, sense data gets interpreted and transformed into my sense of the world, and also how much the brain fabricates on that base and manufactures the cultural experience I have of being in the world. Um, so I, I find it essential to my sanity, I think, that I understand that the baseline experience of my senses is, 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 a complete, is almost like a realm unto itself that's, that, that, that supports and that things are built upon but has to be understood as its own very complete space. Um, and to understand all these levels is the only way to really understand uh, what it is to be human, right? I mean, we exist on all those levels. So I find it very powerful. You know, when I, when I, I was invited by, uh, by the uh, Augmented Communications program at the U of T that worked with uh, communications devices for people with various disabilities uh, as students, they invited me to do a project, and I did a research project into um, the implications of transmodal transcription in the arts, right? So, you know, there's all these things where you try to turn a painting into a sculpture or a painting into a sound. What happens when you try to do that to, to, make, to make works accessible to people who can't deal with the modalities that they're expressed in? And, and the challenges, the problems, and the opportunities that that generated, I mean, it, it opens, of course, up the whole synesthetic space, which is fascinating. Um, I, I, uh, there are lots of people who live on the conceptual level and like to pretend that the central world is, <laughs> doesn't, is not relevant or something. I, I, like to, I feel like I need to tie them all together. To me, it's all a package. Mm -hmm. And um, I would like to be able to trace back from the most purely conceptual ideas to trace the roots back to uh, raw uh, experience. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's, I mean, just to take a side angle on that is in terms of the visual experience, I think I, in some ways I've started to do more visual work because, um, because there are different kinds of challenges and those challenges are interesting, but also because vision in itself has multiple modalities. Uh, I was very affected early on when I was just uh, starting the work on Very Nervous System 
by experiences I had focusing just on peripheral vision. And peripheral vision is its own separate modality from foveal vision, the vision of the, of the central eye, and that was fascinating. You can move yourself, you can completely change your way of being in the world by focusing for long enough on the periphery. And it's, uh, so that there is, there is a kind of vision that we've come to privilege, and it a lot of, has a lot to do with reading, right? Um, the fovea is super powerful, that tiny part of the eye that, that is, has enough resolution to read. Um, you know, we have to skip our eye across the page because we have to keep fitting the letters into this tiny bit of our vision. Uh, there's a lot to be learned in the space between that and the periphery. And to me, it's, it talks to a similar space about the experience of being in the world that I first think I really understood through my years. So in a sense, the visual dominant culture is not necessarily dominant to just the visual, but dominant to this particular... Dominant to an analytical relationship to detail, I think. You know, that, that, that's, that's sort of a thrown-off statement. I quite judge by exactly those words I said, but there is... You know, when, if you think of the way that we've become specialized in our disciplines, uh, partly out of necessity, but that's a kind of detail focus... Information is very much about detail and getting things perfectly right. And that privileges what happens in the eye. And then that part of the eye is, makes more sense in relationship to computation and the precise sort of manipulation of symbols that can't be ambiguous. Right? Right. Whereas this is a very ambiguous space. Right. So we swim in... Closer to the audio world? I think it is. Um, I... Uh, my uninformed, my not very, uh, you know, I can't justify it, but it does feel closer to the audio world. I guess at the time that Very Nervous System was made, uh, were you thinking of it as an artificial intelligence, as being a, an aspect of, of, the, of the medium of the work, or was there, uh, how, did that, how did those discussions of, of the, uh, the decisions made by the computer, uh, how were you uh, viewing those now and in? Or viewing those then, and, and how would you uh, view similar things nowadays? Well, very nervous system, I always considered it a kind of transforming mirror as opposed to anything else. And in very nervous system, I coded all the code. I, there was no mystery there. There was mystery in what happened once a person stepped into the piece, but its actual behavior was... was uh, there was, there was no real mystery and nothing I would be tempted to call artificial intelligence. I, I did fantasize sometimes about what it would mean to, to have a more complex, evolving, responsive system. But I, be, I didn't follow that path because I became ever more interested in the bizarre ways that people interacted with it. So I became more interested in the in what humans did in this context than what I could make the system do. But at the end of that um, experience of very nervous system, the 10 years of working on that, I did another project called The Giver of Names, which was consciously an attempt, not necessarily to make an artificial intelligence, but to play with the kinds of tools and ideas that were being used to, to in that kind of experimentation with a bit of a, with a critical eye, um, to try as hard as possible to make something that I might consider intelligent while watching very closely what I was doing and what trade-offs I was making in the programming. So at that point, I really made a decision because uh, I wanted to understand 
the difference between the kinds of things people were creating and calling them artificial intelligences and what we did with our human brain. And I was particularly stimulated by a quote from Alan Turing, who's commonly thought to believe that machines could, would become intelligent. But his position was more nuanced than that. And in a quote uh, uh, in Life magazine in the late 50s, I believe, early 60s, upon asked whether he believed machines would become intelligent, he said something to the effect of, the meaning of words, I, so he said, I believe by the turn of the century, the meaning of words and the capabilities of machines will have changed such that talking about machines thinking in, in casual conversation would not seem a contradiction. It was a very carefully framed statement. But what he talks about is a convergence, a shift, both in what the word intelligence means and what machines are capable of doing. Mm -hmm. And I had a very profound personal experience of that when I was working on the first version of Very Nervous System to take out to first, my first public show. I spent uh, a month and a half working like crazy on this tight deadline to get the piece ready and uh, didn't see anybody. Spent all my time in my room with the machine working, developing this, getting these algorithms together to understand my movement. And I got it to the point where I was so happy with it. It was so great. I was so amazed by what I'd been able to achieve. And I took it out to Vancouver to set it up and uh, tested it. It worked fine. And people walked through and it didn't work for them. Sometimes they didn't make a sound at all. I'm saying, this is crazy. I'd go in, fine. Nothing would happen. And I didn't understand what was going on until I saw a video of myself moving in, in the piece at the time. I was moving in incredibly abrupt, rigid, tight ways that no one is naturally going to do. And I realized that in that month and a half of intense work, the computer and I converged on an understanding of what movement was. I changed my movement and then I did, I'd slowly adapted my movement to the algorithms that were slowly adapting to my movement. And we come to a consensus. A similar sort of consensus, I saw a similar sort of consensus happening about what the word intelligence means. Between and, you and the computer? Well, between society and the computer, right? And people were talking about intelligent agents without asking what do I really mean by the word intelligence here? And do I mean the same thing as when I talk about a human being being intelligent? And so that piece was really an exploration of how much of what I do as a human being can I mechanize in the code? Mm -hmm. And what's missing still? It was sort of a research project for myself about, you know, what, you know, this kind of classic thing where the great artists are not afraid to ask scientific questions because the answers only deepen the mystery or something like this, right? What's left is, is just is so much more powerful because you get rid of the stuff that's, that seems complicated, but then you can, you know, we can we'd explain that. So what's left is the real question, right? Is a much more interesting question. Mm -hmm. So that became a bit of that. Now, things to get to the second half of your question, things have changed so much since the 90s when I was working on The Giver of Names. A lot of things that were, that were in theory possible, but seemed just, you could never get it right and never quite worked, are now working on people's smartphones. And that's, that's bringing that question forward in a, in a new way. Um, when, when computers can play Go better than best Go master, then we have to, again, ask the question, is the game of Go a measure of, what kind of intelligence is the game of Go a measure of? And we have to be careful not to idolize chess playing and Go playing, which are, which are, which are, which are really 
activities within an extremely narrow set of rules. Perfect for computation on a certain level. I mean, not easy, but perfect for that. Versus what it takes to cross the street with your child in hand on a busy, in, in busy traffic where there are no street lights. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a completely different kind of challenge. They're starting to get there, obviously, with autonomous vehicles and things like that. But we don't realize how remarkable we are. Because we see the, the occasional places where a computer nails something. And we, are, we tend to think less of ourselves. And that was, that, that's been one of my big things, is, to, is to, to, to be fascinated by and to explore computers to great depth and great depth. At the same time, to not lose sight, to, to allow myself in that process to be amazed by the fact that we are able at five to do things my giver of names was, was pathetic at after all these years of programming. Um, that was one of the great gifts for me of working with computers is that it actually made it possible to see what it meant to be human with new eyes that I couldn't have from inside. So I started to talk actually around that time about that the computer for me was like a prosthetic organ of philosophy. That it was a, this augmented thing that allowed me to ask questions, classic questions of philosophy with a new kind of urgency or with a new kind of immediacy. And uh, so that was that sort of uh, where, I, where I got to there. And, and now I don't know where I'm at. Now I'm struggling with the question, do I dive into the newest kind, the newest breakthroughs in, in machine learning? So we don't call it artificial intelligence anymore <laughs> for good reasons. Um, dive into the amazing things that are happening in machine learning. Uh, is that what I should be spending my time with or not? Or was the real question answered with the giver of names where I realized uh, that yes, you can mechanize a lot of what we think is human. And there, there always seems to be stuff that is human that doesn't fit into that. And we have to keep, you know, that, that, that only if we understand that properly can we have an appropriate partnership with the technology. We can't let the technology keep setting the agenda. Right. We have to keep setting the agenda and modifying that as we see, as technology takes different forms, but we can't let go of that. Mm -hmm. um, or I don't think we... I'm not a post-humanist. So what are the future questions then to ask then? One of the questions to ask remains, what are machine learning systems bad at? It's a lot easier to figure out what they're good at. And what, it's, what they're bad at is a lot harder to tease out. Partly because it requires... You know, I, I've always been amazed by the, the, that thing that happens where we sometimes feel, seem to know someone's looking at us. <laughs> like, how does that happen? I don't know how that happens. There's a lot of stuff going on in our day-to-day -day experience that we don't understand. One of the one of the um, one of the strangest ones that I found through very nervous system was, um, you know, I, I started to have this feeling after working with very nervous system in the space, not doing the, the programming, but actually interacting with it. That's, it's like I seem to, it seemed to sometimes be ahead of me. I couldn't figure out, because I knew everything was going on. It was always, the system was always looking at what's happening, what I was doing, and then making sounds, and the sounds, I was hearing the sounds, and I was responding. 
sometimes it felt like the machine was ahead of me and I couldn't figure out, it was just a visceral feeling, I couldn't figure out. So I set up the system to respond the instant it saw any movement with a very clear sound. And I stood in the installation as still as possible and I tried to outdraw the system like in a Western gunslinger. And every time it made a sound when I thought I had just made the decision to start to move. Uh-huh. And this was, it just kept happening. I was going, what's going on? <laughs> and uh, it was very alarming. Perhaps, did you perhaps begin your movement without realizing? Well, yes, but the reason that that happened is more complicated. Uh, it's about why I didn't realize that I was moving. Um, I did a little research and I discovered that consciousness lags about at least no, approximately a tenth of a second behind our, our motor movements. So by the time consciousness is registered that we're in motion, we've already been in motion for a tenth of a second, which is three video frames, which is three full cycles of very nervous system. So, uh, I mean, that was fascinating to me. So would you put a, a filter or a delay or something that would line it up with consciousness or are you well you could but it was more fun it was much more fun to have it preceding yeah. consciousness because that creates a much more uh, uh, resonant feedback loop mm-hmm. because it means that if you start making a gesture the gesture will, will have registered with the system the system will have produced a sound and the sound will have entered your ear before you're aware you started the movement mm-hmm. and so you are in a situation where you're responding to yourself without realizing it's yourself you're responding to. And so that kind of almost timelessness um, that's possible there means that the experience, when you go there, when you give yourself to floating in that ambiguous control space where you're not sure if you're controlling it or it's controlling you, Mm -hmm. there's a very sort of lovely, weightless floating experience that you have in very nervous system, which which is, is really a space of trust, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense. It's a really, it's a really, um, it can be a very exciting, very deep experience to go there. And it's partly because of that. So I was never tempted to introduce, I mean, there are all sorts of delays that are introduced in making music mm-hmm. and in analyzing movement. Every filter involves, it creates a delay. Uh, in a sense, um, right. and so any any per, any perception on the side of the nervous system also introduces delay. So there are automatically there are things that come right come right at that thirtieth uh, of a second after movement, and there are things that bloom afterwards because it's then perceiving extended movement. So it's actually this is a whole other this leads to a whole other question that has to do with what I would call temporal bandwidth. And the, the breadth of your present, um, uh, which was very much part of the, um, my experience going into the production of very nervous systems. I was doing all these experiments with peripheral vision. And they, one of the things that they did was they put me, they squished me into a very narrow present where I was um, ultra improvisatory and very, I lost my sense of history though. I, if I was depressed, I was depressed forever. I couldn't imagine not being depressed, and if I was happy, happy. It was infinite. It was a very interesting space. It was very much uh, turning down all the bass, taking a graphic equalizer, turning everything down but the highest frequencies, and 
it was it was extraordinary. It was ecstatic. It was a wonderful. It was, there were no drugs involved. It was purely weird experiments with with vision. Um, so I mean, this is in some kind of controlled situation rather than just reorienting your eyes out in the environment. No, I was walking oh, down Spadina. I was yeah. walking the streets, oh, okay. yeah. f- letting my eye, the fovea, go dead in the distance and paying attention to what was just disappearing out of my periphery. Okay, okay. So just... Now, interestingly enough, at that time I was in my ninth or tenth rereading of Gravity Rose Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon, and the main character in Gravity's Rainbow, Tyrone Slothrop, effectively narrows his temporal bandwidth so that he kind of evaporates uh, in the book. He ceases to be a functional character. <laughs> and it was only later that I made that connection when I read an analysis of Gravity's Rainbow talking about Pinchon's conscious manipulation of the temporal bandwidth of the main character. I thought, oh my God, that's exactly, you know. So um, uh, what came out of that was an understanding that that was a fascinating and problematic space. Was your interest in this uh, also interest in any, like, Zen or any other... There was Zen happening. I was, I was reading lots of John Cage and uh, spillovers into uh, Suzuki and uh, all, sorts, all, all sorts of uh, stuff flying through my head at the time. Um, but my end point was to realize, so if you can manipulate your relationship to the present then what is the ideal relationship to the present? And then I went back to a, a sound metaphor, and it's a, it's, a, it's a balanced acoustic. You know, it's a it's when you you adapt your you, with your graphic equalizer until you're fully responsive on all channels, in a sense, you know, at all all bandwidth. So you you are capable both of responding immediately to what comes immediately to you, and hold the sense of history at the same time. And and all the things in between. That there's a kind of there's a life there's a there's a life equalizer uh, in your temporal <laughs> relationship, and in something like very nervous system, you can actually tune that. So part of composing for very nervous system is tweaking temporal bandwidth, is to layer these uh, longer and all the things in between. That there's a kind of there's a life there's a there's a life equalizer uh, in your temporal <laughs> relationship. And in something like very nervous system, you can actually tune that. So part of composing for very nervous system is tweaking temporal bandwidth, is to layer these uh, longer and all the things in between. That there's a kind of there's a life there's a there's a life equalizer uh, in your temporal <laughs> relationship. And in something like very nervous system, you can actually tune that. So. Part of composing for a very nervous system is tweaking temporal bandwidth, is to layer these uh, longer and all the things in between. That there's a kind of there's a life there's a there's a life equalizer uh, in your temporal <laughs> relationship, and in something like very nervous system, you can actually tune that. So part of composing for a very nervous system is tweaking temporal bandwidth, is to layer these. Uh, longer and all the things in between. That there's a kind of there's a life there's a there's a life equalizer uh, in your temporal <laughs> relationship, and in something like very nervous system, you can actually tune that. So part of composing for very nervous system is tweaking temporal bandwidth, is to layer these uh, longer and all the things in between. That there's a kind of 
there's a life there's a there's a life equalizer uh, in your temporal <laughs> relationship and in something like very nervous system you can actually tune that so part of composing for a very nervous system is term responses and dialogues across longer terms with the shorter term ones um, and so there are there are reasons for example you hear sometimes the breathing of that one piece the sort of um, that's to establish a certain temporal rhythm mm -hmm. which which keeps everything from collapsing down to the whatever there's all and there's there's then, there's then sounds that only come after a certain amount of activity has taken place you've charged up the battery of it and then the battery releases at the end of a movement so that what happens is you're not stuck into what Marshall McLuhan would call when he talked about Narcissus a becoming a servo mechanism of your own image. You don't become locked into this instant response back and forth. You make a gesture and the gesture ramifies around and ricochets around and comes back and gives you something to bounce off of at a time delay, which is the reason I love the myth of echo narcissus. Because for me, echo is the speed of, uh, narcissus is the speed of light and echo is the speed of sound. And echo is the fact that, uh, as they used to say in the 17th century, you know, echo is your voice coming back, colored by the voices of the wood nymphs, right? But it is the sense of one's relationship with one's environment. Whereas the narcissistic instantaneous thing is just you and you locked in an unbreakable embrace. Things that involve these sort of rolling time delays and expanded um, uh, temporal bandwidth are dialogues with the whole, the whole world. The way you manifest in the world and that manifestation comes back to you so that, <laughs> that so is is uh, the manipulation of time is that critical to uh, interactive artwork and sometimes it's overlooked i think um you know it really depends i guess i mean you are inherently doing that with anything that's interactive because you are effectively adding a dimension to the work so if you make a, a three-dimensional sculpture interactive, you've added a, another, you've added the time dimension. If you make a kinetic sculpture interactive, you've added a fifth dimension. You know, if you make a painting interactive, you added a third dimension. You're always adding a dimension to it when you make it interactive. So there is that character. You're always, you know, time is a, is a factor. It's more poignant in some. It's super poignant in, in the nervous system because music is so hinged on time in a way that even even moving pictures are not mm -hmm. um, moving pictures there's the 30 frames a second and there's some stuff beyond that but in sound you're dealing with with frequency but tamra and envelope all these different relationships of different different and they're they're all changing but they're all at different scales within time right mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know you have that with visuals because you have the arc of the story but they're but in a much more fundamental level, you have all these different levels of, 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 of temporal behavior. <coughs> so for me, when I was really thinking about what I was doing when I was working with the nervous system, I started to feel as though I was taking a, a, a blob of time, throwing it on the potter's wheel and working it. You know, that, that as I tweaked my variables, I was tweaking and squeezing and war twisting time in a way that was super exciting to me. It was time as a plastic medium in a way that it, it that music gestures towards and gets there maybe in improvisation, but 
you know, to really, to really, just to really be playing that. That was a real artistic high. You know, that time became my medium at that point. Was that something that was kind of in the air in uh, um, experimental music? And and uh, I'm thinking of uh, people like George Lewis and Dan Scheidt at the time, and and their yeah, I didn't know anything about and Dan Scheidt and 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 uh, and George Lewis until I. Basically, until I taught a workshop that they took part in, which was a joke, because I, I really think I should have been taking the workshop from them. But anyway, at the BAM Center, I taught a workshop, and the two people taking the workshop were Dan Scheidt and George Lewis, and it was, it, was, it was amazing. It was fantastic. And it was a great sharing of ideas that I, I learned. I'm sure I learned way more than anyone else did. It was, it was, it was great. Um, so certainly, those ideas, the ideas that they were we're working with uh, in terms of interactive composition and uh, interactive players and co cooperative players was was really right along the line of uh, what I was interested in. I don't know where my I don't know where who, where I stole my ideas from. Mm -hmm. uh, to come out of the kind of uh, there, uh, the like, what the like, with it, I guess. Well, it must have come from somewhere. I mean, you know, some of it was stimulated by. Um, by John Cage, certainly, uh, but it takes quite a different angle on it than John Cage did. But the idea of systems of composition that's very clear in Cage is certainly a useful idea to use. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of replaced the I Ching with a human body moving through space. You know, So he had a compositional system where he would toss his coins and make the determinations. Well, I thought, well, you can do the same thing. and have the human body moving in space, being analyzed by a computer, be the, the, the tossed coins. <clears throat> that was not, I didn't sit down and think that way, but that was something that was going on at the same time. Um, I know I started, the idea for very nervous system, the most fundamental, the first, not the first actually, but one of the first, one of the real, the thing, the, the time I decided I'm gonna do this instead of just, wow, it'd be, wouldn't it be cool? was in a class uh, at OCA, Ontario College of Art, at the time, with <clears throat> the great sound artist Nobuo Kubota. And I don't know <clears throat> why, but within the first week, <clears throat> it was in the first week of classes, and I'm sitting in his class, and I don't know what him saying stuff had to do with any of it. I have no idea, but I know that, that, I know that the idea came in that class. <laughs> so, you know... Uh, there were a bunch of fascinating influences around that were playing on it. Some of it was certainly just that the computer got to be something you could own, mm -hmm. and you could start to ask questions could be around with it, it and make and wonder about it. Yeah, so mm -hmm. so there were a bunch of different things, I'm, uh, and I know that there were people all around all around the world having similar ideas at the same time. There was someone in Finland who did it. In a, in a much m even lower resolution, I think you had a two by two camera in the late sixties. Um, and uh, but but in the early eighties, there were a bunch of people in Australia and uh, Germany and all over playing with these same ideas. And it was you know, sometimes you have to think maybe Rupert Rupert Sheldrake is right with his morphic resonance that you know once an idea has happened, it's more likely to appear elsewhere as well. You know. Yeah, there's. Factors that lead, 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 lead to it are happening in multiple places. Yeah, so you just don't know, right? But you just know that, uh, you know, I, I, I had the pleasure over my years of traveling to run into people who were doing 
similar related conceptual related stuff around the same time or before and it was every time it was like a great discovery it was uh, it was kind of like coming home and realizing that you're not you weren't the only per, only person it's always nice um, there's always the part that wants to sh you know jealously guard the ideas and you know, I was the first person to do it. but on the other hand there's great pleasure in finding someone else you can finally talk to about, yes. oh man you know oh yeah that thing you know that's a fantastic thing that was David Rokeby and myself, Darren Copeland, in conversation at the NASA North Media Arts Center in South River, Ontario. Very Nervous System will be on exhibit there until September 4th, along with PNR by Tanya St. Pierre and Philippe Aubert-Gobetier. Mm -hmm.